The box. Meet people through their music. With Ash Bertabez on FBI. Well, hello there. Indeed, you are listening to Out of the Box. And uh, thank you so much to Stephen Ferris, king of the disco. Another great morning. He's just dancing in here most of the time. It's very fun to watch. And Jazz Twimlow is my guest today. Hello. Jazz Oh, indeed. Jazz is a Liverpool-born comedian who came to Australia only three years ago. But in those three years, he's written for A Rational Fear and for The Roast, which is the ABC's daily news satire show. He also writes for The Guardian a lot, and he's just started up his own podcast. Yesterday, actually. And the podcast is of the same name as his one-man show. It's called Disgruntalist, and much like the name might suggest, it's a good old crabby rant about a lot of current issues that warrant a good old crabby rant. That's Welcome. a lovely way of describing that. Thank you very much. <laughs> it really, you know, it's, it's a good release valve on all the things that I'm particularly pissed off on. Is there, is there a particular reason that you wanted to start this podcast right now? Um, uh, unemployment <laughs> at the moment. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I guess it seems to be the way, it seems to be the comedy model now. Like a lot of um, stand-ups are uh, doing their own podcasts and stuff. Um, and I just think that's sort of where things are heading, and you kind of need one. Yeah. Um, plus, it's it's yeah. If I'm, it's a, it's actually a good way of workshopping material as well, like talking your way through um, issues that really annoy you, um, and kind of coming across little bits of material uh, on the fly, which is kind of cool. It's a particularly uh, annoying thing that's I've I noticed recently. Bill Shorten was delivering a bit of a speech about all the lies that Tony Abbott has told. Mm. And uh, during which, yeah, yeah, Tony Abbott had his back to him the whole time, the entire time, which is amazing. You'd think that there'd be some sort of manners, yeah, like, like for, for that job bit. especially. Yeah. Like you'd think, um, like even two, yeah, like t- two people meeting at a at a sex po, you know, <laughs> like if if even if they were surrounded by sex toys, like in wibbly bits. Like if one of them started to turn their back on the other, say, "Hang on, look, I know this is sex po, and there's." graphic images everywhere but that was rude like even there you wouldn't turn your back on someone but mm. you kind of think yeah the, the the building where the country gets run you might kind of i don't know listen to the person that's criticizing you yeah sans wibbly bits you'd think it'd be a bit easier to actually you know lend an ear to the leader of you know representative of probably 40 percent of the population maybe that's just what that's what parliament house needs just lots of wibbly wibbly <laughs> bits walls made, made of wibbly of, bits yeah <laughs> Oof, i started tough. off weird <laughs> Um, and you were also having a bit of a, a bit of a grumpy rant about the ABC cuts. Yes, I was. Yeah. And we'll talk about a bit more of that in a second because you have published, well, Junkie has published your writing, and it mm. is one of the most amazing pieces I've read all year. Oh, thank I'd you. have to say. Um, just you know, not blowing smoke up your ass, but you know, <laughs> very good. And so we take our first track. It's called Purple Haze, Jimi Hendrix. Now, why this track? Um, it's the. It's the opening music for Bill Hicks walking on in his um, DVD uh, Revelations, and he was really the comedian that uh, got me interested in in comedy. So yeah, just the power of that song, him walking on it, really, really left an impression. Wicked on FBI ninety four point
was a bit exciting. It was a bit. It was almost too exciting. Yeah. I might go. I feel like can I go home for a nap? You can go home for a nap. I'll take care of the rest of the show. Sure. Just pretend you're talking to me. I'm Jazz Twimlo. <laughs> Is that what I sound like? No, I just am oh. very bad at impersonations. Right. That might have been really good. It's just that I don't know what I sound like. So <laughs> that could have been perfect. And you made a podcast, didn't even listen to it, just published it. You never yeah. know what's on there. Who knows what you I said. Listen on back there. to yourself. Right. Good right. tips. <laughs> <laughs> so that track was indeed Purple Haze by Jimi Hendrix. And why again did you bring that on? Because uh, it was Bill Hicks's walk on music for his yeah, Revelations tour. Um, and if yeah, if you get a chance to watch it, you really should. It's one of the best entrances on stage ever. It's fantastic. And Bill Hicks was a big influence on you, so we'll have a bit of Bill Hicks a little bit later in the show. Ooh. But first, I'd like to talk to you about the ABC cuts. Oh. $254 million worth of cuts. Yes. You know, that's not an insignificant amount of money. And you did manage to find out five other ways that the government could have... Yeah. Yes, maybe uh, those cuts otherwise. Yeah, and they're weirdly um kind of approx like approximately equal in num like in the amount of money. Like um I can't remember what I even well there was the fighter jets um which I'm not a huge fan of. So I think we bought was it 58? 58, yeah. Um and that costs 12 billion and then it costs a further 12 billion to get them running. Um so it's sort of 24 billion altogether or sort of almost half the deficit. Um and yeah, like you could have maybe fifty-seven. I'm sure that fifty-seven planes would still be able to bomb somewhere pretty well. Like you wouldn't be missing that fifty-eighth that, that plane. One, yeah, that yeah. one village that you didn't bomb properly yeah, yeah. turns out to mm, that one hospital yeah. you didn't miss. Uh, <laughs> sort of. Yeah. So it's yeah, fifty-seven. I think that's reasonable. I yeah. think that's a good place to start. Just you know, one less would be good. And also, odd numbers are better for um, formations. So you could like make a funky triangle in the sky or something. Fifty-eight, even number, <laughs> rubbish. Exactly. Yeah, you know how they have you know birds flying in a triangle. Yeah. You can't do that with fifty-eight planes. No. That's Silly. why. That's why birds only fly around in 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 numbers of fifty-seven, multiples <laughs> of fifty-seven. Check it. out. That is a hardcore scientific fact. I found it on Wikipedia. Yeah. And okay, <laughs> failing the uh, you know the willingness of the government to dump the fighter jets, you moved on to the News Corp tax rebate, oh, yeah. which would get how many? million dollars? Uh, it was border- bordering on $900 million. Um, that's not Monopoly money. That's, that's yeah, a lot. That's, a long, that's almost a billion dollars. <laughs> that's a lot. But um, yeah, I mean, some someone left a comment on the article saying, yeah, but that's a tax rebate because they paid too much tax. Um, so the government should return that money to them. And I was like, well, yeah, but my article's not arguing that. It's, it's saying, but just don't give it back to them because the ABC is better. Um, or at least one third of it would yeah, be fine. I give mean, back, yeah. He wouldn't miss it. Yeah. Speaking of which, your synonyms for Rupert Murdoch I find very admirable. Ooh. Um, I think wrinkled, palpatine, stunk, stunt double husk. Yeah. That's good. It rolls off the tongue really I'm, nicely. <laughs> I'm sure if... I, I reckon he should get in on the action for uh, the seventh Star Wars film because if they need... Oh, we didn't actually die at the end of uh, Return of the Jedi. Spoiler alert. Um... <laughs> Then if yeah, if Palpatine comes back, he's a sh- he's a definite shoe in, I reckon. Or a megalomaniacal walking scrotum with eyes. That's um. I also described him as very that. Very vivid. Yes. yes, not so much a role for that in Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So I, I'm wondering, do you write the best comedy when you're angry? Because I have to say, this breeze is a little bit, a little bit pissed off. Yeah, I guess. Um, yeah, I guess the best comedy says something about the world. Um, and if you're unsatisfied with something, then that gives you a lot of passion to say things shouldn't be this way. Um, 
because otherwise comedy can just be a bit I mean I'm nothing against you know surreal comedians or like sketch comedians or anything like that because they, they obviously make people laugh but I for me personally I prefer stuff that says something about the world we live in and yeah stuff like that that makes me angry is a good source of that material so do you try to get angry when you're going in to write for the roast? You've been writing for the roast for how long now? Um, two years. Yeah. Mm. There's um, yeah. The the worst mornings we have is when like Nick, who's the um, executive producer and showrunner and director and everything, like he and I and you know the other writers are sitting at the table and saying, yeah, there's nothing in today's news that makes us angry. <laughs> so <laughs> that's when we make episodes that um, they're just fun and you know that's ten those those tend to be the episodes where the silly stuff happens. So we'll talk a little bit more about the roast in a sec, but first we've got a track called If I Had a Tail. Mm, love that song. Mm-hmm. By it's, Queens of the Stone Age. Yes, it's great. I get up at 5.30 every morning, walk to the roast, sometimes jog, um, and this is a real great, the, the thumping riff at the beginning is great, um, getting your legs moving, walking to work, kind of get energised kind of music. What even is 5.30am? Oh, we'll talk about it later. <laughs>
on FBI 94.5. A little bit of extra loving on the end of that track from Queens of the Stone Age. You're listening to Out of the Box, and my guest today is Jazz Twemlow. Still. Still. <laughs> I'm still here. Yeah, he, th- he said he was going to go home for a nap, but uh, second around. wind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is fantastic. It's good to have you here. Thank you. And so you, you've been writing for The Roast for two years, and you guys have just wrapped up. Yes. Yeah, we finished for the year. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and then have to wait and see what happens next. It's Cause... going. I mean, hope, hopefully, something happens. Um, <laughs> so, luckily, at least, if if nothing happens, you've left us with a box set for next year. True. So, tell me, what do you what do you predict for next year in Australian politics? Ah, uh, it's hard. Like it's. Uh, I mean, if if the G twenty is anything to go by, I think it's just going to be one after the other of continuous gaffes and um, not uh, making any headway with climate change and just still very stubbornly focusing on coal like i've got the, the amount of like what is it i've had three phrases now coal is good for humanity <laughs> coal is the future and i'm standing up for coal uh, which is just like the man is obsessed um so Sounds i just like think it's more being bullied yeah i know yeah stop it all right and what about julie bishop is she going to uh transform at all in the next year um i th- i imagine so i imagine she might if uh, my sense is that um, Tony Abbott's popularity will uh, diminish, or he might cause problems, and she's going to have to take a more proactive. I think she will probably sort of become more uh, more of a main figurehead of the of them. I, reckon. <laughs> I think I'm referring more to the fact that in the roast uh, box set, it says that she might turn oh. into a post-gender borderless identity and become pure politics, basically based on the fact oh, that dear. she <laughs> doesn't I identify t- with feminism. At all. I'd totally forgotten about that. Yes. <laughs> she, um, yeah, she said she, she doesn't identify as a feminist. Yeah, so we said, um, yeah, she, yeah, she would be post-gender <laughs> and become the pure energy of politics. And I think we had a photograph of a beam of light standing behind a podium. Um, yeah, it's weird how you forget script. We always forget our scripts the next day when we come into work. We can't remember what we did the previous day. <laughs> I think if you're working that much, I mean, it's five days a week, right? Yeah, four and then, yeah, we get Fridays off. Indeed. So four days a week, mm. starting at five thirty in the morning. What kind of hours are you doing there? Um, so we start we start chatting about, about news stories at seven a.m. and then usually by about eight thirty we've chosen them and kind of what we want to say about them and start writing around eight thirty, and then at ten thirty, all the production crew comes in, um, everyone, props, management, everything, um, and we do a read through for them, and then we set about rewriting it until about. Uh, midday one o'clock but by, by the time we're rewriting stuff some of the stuff that's been locked off is already being filmed as well so you're kind of laying tracks in front of the drain it's pretty um yeah it's terrifying and then usually we finish filming by three. Oh, that's not too bad so it's pretty good five yeah. to three that's like a 10 hour day i'm not yeah. very good at math i have, I have to say that i i got up at five thirty. like i'm not sure everyone <laughs> else was that crazy but i i, I walked so <laughs> i had to get up pretty early just sleep in the office yeah yeah just all right, and so we were talking a moment ago about you know whether being angry makes you write better comedy, and you did bring in a a little bit of Bill Hicks. Yes. Tell me about your love for Bill. Um, it was it was weird because I was already fascinated. Like my brother, who's like eleven years older than me, had forced like Chomsky on me and sort of all these people. So I was already into that kind of stuff, but I didn't realize it existed in comedy as well. I wasn't really that into stand-up comedy to be honest. So when when I saw Bill Hicks, I was like, oh, he's saying exactly the same things as you know, 
George Monbiot or um, Chomsky, but just just like like Bill Hicks said, you know, he's he's Chomsky with dick jokes. Um, <laughs> so yeah, instantly it's like, oh, okay, so you can be funny and say something that means something. Fantastic. All right, you're listening to FBI ninety four point five, and there's a little bit of a language warning on this one, maybe even a content warning. Yeah, indeed. All right, Bill Hicks and FBI 94.5. You never see my attitude in the press. That's what bugs me. You never see my point of view. For instance, gays in the military. Now, I don't know how y'all feel about it. Gays want to be in the military. Here's how I feel about it. All right? Anyone dumb enough to want to be in the military should be allowed in. <laughs> End of fucking story. That should be the only requirement. I don't care how many push-ups you can do. Put on a helmet, go wait in that foxhole. We'll tell you when we need you to kill somebody. You know what I mean? I'm so sick. I've watched these fucking congressional uh, hearings and all these military guys and all the pundits seriously. Oh, the esprit de corps will be affected and and we are such a moral... Excuse me, aren't y'all fucking hired killers? Shut up! You are thugs. And when we need you to go blow the fuck out of a nation of little brown people, we'll let you know. Until then... Where did the fucking military get all these more? We are the military. Is that a village of children and kids? Where's the name? Oh, I don't want any gay people hanging around me while I'm killing kids. I just don't want to see it. Don't tell me this military protects our freedom. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, there ain't no one out there who's a fucking threat to us, okay? They don't exist. Oh, I'm talking now only of countries we don't arm first, all right? If you want to split hairs, you've got a point. Bill, what about the nations we sell arms to and then go blow the fuck out of them? Okay, they might be scary for about a day. We give them the old weapons, we use the new ones on them, you know. Fucking Iraq found that out, huh? You have the Scud, we have the Patriot. The Scud times two, you fucks. Just keep selling them the shitty shit, you know. We're fighting the next year, they'll have muskets. America won a war with this. Yeah, 100 years ago. We got new shit now. Fuck. What is that? It's musket repellent. I can kill you by looking at you. <laughs> so cutting, yeah. so bitter. That's his, that's his really great talent was that, that one line, yeah, I, I, don't want, I don't want any gay people hanging around while I'm killing kids. Like just a succinct expression that just says it all in a sentence original tweet yeah yeah right (laughs) totally such higher quality pre-twitter comedian yeah indeed well you strike me as the kind of comedian who you know similar to him makes people laugh so they don't have to cry about certain things like you know climate science and and climate science denialism australian politics that sometimes makes you want to cry all the time social issues in general these are some of the things that you kind of you know touch on indeed and so have you has your comedy always been like this yeah um ever since my first gig like um yeah i remember actually yeah weirdly um yeah my first gig i was talk i did a whole set about the iraq war um in manchester um and yeah i've never really changed since then i i'm i'm trying to be a bit more anecdotal these days so i've tried to do some more personal stuff but generally i still focus on yeah current affairs and things that irk me yeah indeed and you've kind of had two different 
careers in comedy. As much as you've been covering the same stuff, there was a bit of a hiatus in the middle. Yeah. Oh, yeah, big one. Yes. How big was that hiatus? Uh, it was like six or seven years. Six or seven years? Yeah. Um, yeah, because I was doing, doing stand-up at... Uh, I was doing stand-up at, as an undergraduate. Um, I used to get the train from Sheffield to Manchester, which is where sort of the UK's comedy mecca was in the north. But then when I shifted to a master's degree, I just didn't have time and stopped and then didn't really miss it for a while for some reason. I don't know why, because I obviously really like it now. But yeah. Um, yeah, I just didn't pick it up again. So when you did a master's degree, you were talking... Anymore, not talking, but writing about William Blake. Wow, you've really done your research, haven't you? It's <laughs> crazy. Yeah, this is a way way back when. But William Blake's a poet, and and why do you kind of associate, you know, a lot of what you do with him? Do you, do you think that you guys kind of have a similar style, even um, though he's you know a few centuries before he's dead. us? Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. um, he well, I was really pleasantly surprised. Like I picked I picked that topic, um, just because I love English literature. Um, I, there was no other sort of motivation there. But um, once I started uh, studying him and reading more of William Blake, I realised he was actually quite an angry uh, revolutionary type. Um, and a lot of his poetry focuses on um, organised religion and um, the subjugation of women. And so quite a lot of aggressive stuff. And it, yeah, it was weird. It was nice to find yet another person that I am inspired by um, in a completely different field. But yeah, he's the Bill Hicks of romantic poetry, <laughs> basically. <laughs> If only he could have known that. Yeah. And in in that hiatus that you had between your first comedy career and your second comedy <laughs> career, a lot changed. I mean, now we've got a social media landscape. That's something you would have never had to deal with before. No, that's horrible. Yeah, I hate... I. It was weird starting up a, the second time. Because when I first started stand-up, basically you had to do a good gig and you had to talk to the manager and say, put me on again or whatever, did you like it? And word would spread mouth to mouth. Um, that's a bit weird. Mouth to mouth. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a little bit of face to face. Basically, everyone in Manchester was kissing, and yeah. that's how I got gigs. <laughs> uh, no, they, they um, yeah, you had to rely on word of mouth. That's what I was looking for. Um, whereas now, yeah, a comedian can do like a five minute open spot and not do very well, but tweet, you know, just killed it at the the gig in Sydney and no one the problem with Twitter is no one's going to call them out on it because it's yeah. there's a weird unspoken rule about Twitter that you don't you because you, you'd lose hours every day if you had to correct people's tweets like no you didn't like <laughs> you did not kill it you did not kill <laughs> um, so these things go unchecked and you know so lots of self self promotion's a lot easier now but also that means there's a lot yeah. more people doing it but surely you can use that to your advantage being like totally kill it you know 500 people rocked up to my tiny little news agency gig <laughs> yeah yeah it was weird a thousand people got into my living room killed it absolutely killed it bill hicks came back from the dead said i was better than him it's uh it's amazing <laughs> all right so let's play a track from uh, what are they called led zeppelin who are these guys uh, i don't know some <laughs> band from the 18th century can't remember uh yeah <laughs> okay so why why this track and how do you even pronounce the name because i'm not even gonna give it a go i believe it's called bronira um which is I chose it because I I'm there's no sort of anecdotal stuff here, but it's I do I love Led Zeppelin and on arguably what's one of their like heaviest albums, um, Physical Graffiti. Um, it's just nice to stumble across this track, which is a really nice, folksy acoustic kind of song. Um, although there is an anecdote, sorry, it, there's a cottage or a town in Wales, which and Bronnyrar is that cottage where Led Zeppelin went to. I think make Led Zeppelin three. And me and my um, high school friends made a sort of pilgrimage to the cottage 
um, and did copious amounts of um, C-grade drugs, um, <laughs> which was I wouldn't condone, but um, I was 17. Um, yeah. It's, it's more about the cottage, really. Yeah, it was all about the cottage. You're trying we, to appreciate the cottage from a new you know, perspective yeah. or in the plane of consciousness. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Um, yeah, and we wrote a note and slid it under the door, but I, I, I'm terrified. I think it was absolute nonsense because <laughs> I didn't know what I was writing by then. Oh, if only you'd recorded what that note said. I know. Mm. It would, yeah, drivel, I imagine. But make, yeah. Make for great comedy now, I'm sure. <laughs> All right, Bronira from Led Zeppelin on FBI 94.5. You listen to Out of the Box with my guest today, Jazz Twemlo, and my name's Ash Bird. Hey, <laughs> Pudlian accent coming through right there. Uh, what's that one? No, that's uh, that's London, isn't it? I think. <laughs> no, Liverpoolian is more like that, you know. Like, uh, why have you not got a Liverpoolian accent in your normal talk? In, in my normal talk. <laughs> in, normal talk. <laughs> in your human voice. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I think because I was born there, but then um, the family home was across the water on a peninsula across the water from Liverpool. Um, so it's weird actually. My sister does have a Liverpoolian accent because she's stayed there. Um, whereas my brother and I don't, because we've we for some reason fled fled England. <laughs> <laughs> Just you know, across a tiny bit of water, and then it all changed. Yeah, weird. Well, you did flee though. You went to Japan. Yes, right. And in Japan, you were kind of assessing the comedy scene. You know, mm. part of it just because that's what you did. What did you kind of realize about the comedy scene in Japan? Um, well, in terms of native comedy, like the, the the actual Japanese comedians, that's all very slapstick. Um, they've got a thing called manzai, which is it's pretty much always a double act, and the dynamic between them is that one of them's smart and one of them's dumb, and the dumb one's ruining the smart guy's life somehow. There's a lot of physical stuff in it, hitting each other with long planks when they call their names and they turn around and hit them on the head with the plank, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but then I I actually I opened a comedy night 
um, in Tokyo um, to just try and focus more on the, the, the regular sort of Western stand-up. Um, and yeah, we did, yeah, but I organised that for a year with um, a friend, Trevor, who's also from the UK. It's really interesting. So is the is the comedy scene big in Japan and is, is opening a comedy store fairly easy? Um, the comedy scene for Japanese comedians is massive. Um, they that's their way to get into movies and stuff um with actual sort of western english language stand-up there was the tokyo comedy store still is um and they yeah when we set up our own independent little uh comedy group which is called the mad cows big night out uh, <laughs> i don't know because oh, the venue was called the pink cow um yeah the tokyo comedy store wasn't too pleased and there were some really weird stuff like you know if you perform at jazz and trevor's gig um you will never be welcome to perform at the Tokyo Comedy Store again. Wait, so people got threatened because they were going to do comedy on your stage? Yeah, instead. How dare so they? So odd. Yeah, it was really weird. Um, and I got fed up with it, which is part of the reason I left. Because I was like, well, because if if, that's when I got the bug again. Um, mm. We said, you know, I'd stop for six years and then I picked it up. And it's like, no, I actually do want to focus on this. But obviously, Tokyo is not the place to do it. <laughs> yeah. It sounds so uncomedy to get angry at people for performing comedy on a stage, not yours. Yeah. It just, ugh, Yeah. Comedians infighting. should be are the truth speakers and freedom of expression, but only in these places, <laughs> not, not anywhere else. <laughs> yeah. yeah very odd. Very odd. Tantamount to signing a contract to, you know, belong to a certain club. Yeah. Or, yeah, to yeah belong to a certain physical space. It's very odd. Yeah. yeah. Very strange. So, you know, Japan is, it, it can seem like a bit of a utopia, really. Mm. I mean, you know culturally advanced technology and very interesting and wacky mm. did the novelty wear off for you after a while because you were there for quite some time yeah it was it's great to be there as a uh, a visitor and a short-term stayer like a year two years tokyo is endlessly fascinating uh, i think to live there it's not my cup of tea because i'm a bit more of a relaxed um slow-paced kind of guy um so yeah the bright lights and the the constant um, technology and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, it's quite, um, what's the word, like over overstimulating, I guess. Um, yeah, so I definitely recommend going for, well, as long as you like. But for me, um, yeah, three years was as, as long as I could handle it, I reckon. Speaking of overstimulating, did you ever <laughs> clamber on into a old uh, sensory deprivation tank while you were in Tokyo? Not in, God, you've really done your research. Um <laughs> Not in Japan. I love doing sensory deprivation tanks um, here. There's a place in Bondi that I go to. Um, I try to go every two or three weeks. It's really great. It's um, it's a little bit weird to realize that you know you spend all this money on iPhones and smartphones and all this stuff, and then you're then you end up paying people money so that you can escape the things you paid money for. Because <laughs> like yeah, I think we're too there's too much people you know. My girlfriend and I are probably Twitterholics um, and spend too much time on our phones. It's just nice to get away from a screen, get away from stimulation, noise, and sort of reset your brain. Yeah, so is is that it? Or just, you know, do sensory deprivation tanks kind of trip you out? I mean, you're mm. completely without stimulation. Mm. So what, do you, what does your brain do? How does it kind of take advantage of all of this extra space? Um, it's a bit of a mixed experience. Sometimes I've just fallen asleep and just had the best sleep in an hour I feel like I've had like four hours sleep. Um, but yeah, sometimes if you're very awake, then your mind does start to fill in the gaps. Um, so I've had a few times where I've had some pretty 
nothing wacky like in the Simpsons where they imagine going into someone else's body. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, I wish it did. Um, I want my money back, but um, yeah, I, you do see like swirling colors, shapes. Um, yeah, and it gets like a, sometimes a feeling of movement, like you're flying through a black sky. Um, that's for me. I don't know. I'd be interested to see what other people have experienced in there actually yeah that's my a, experience but is it expensive to hang out in a sensory deprivation tank because i'd no, like to give it a go it's like it's 40 bucks for an hour oh that's wicked so it's pretty good do they change the water though um well one time i was in there and there were two poos so probably not <laughs> what? no that would be, be horrible but there was just, just another guy in there died uh, they left him in there um no uh, yeah they, they change it <laughs> all right i've lost my will to sensory deprivation tank <laughs> Yeah, what's the verb? <laughs> to tank. Yeah, to tank. Oneself. All right, well, we'll whack on a song for a moment by a band called, wait for it, Happy End. Hello. <laughs> okay, can you uh, say the name of this track because I'm going to embarrass myself horribly? Yeah, it's called Kaze o Atsumete, which is um, the only Japanese karaoke song that I learnt, um, which I used to sort of whack out to impress Japanese people in bars, those open karaoke bars. Um, yeah, I heard it on Lost in Translation. Um and it's it's just a, it just means seize gather the wind, um, and again similar to the Brony Ra, it's a very nice happy happy go lucky song. Fantastic on FBI ninety four point five. My guest today is Jazz Twemlow. <laughs> Get it. 
so cute it's a lovely little song yeah the Japanese were always so uh, yeah impressed when a, an English guy whacks out a whole song in, 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 in fluent Japanese it's great I can, I can very much imagine you oh, I at commit. karaoke yeah, yeah. yeah totally commit you know grabbing handfuls of air and pulling them close to you yeah, emotionally yes like, gathering the wind yeah <laughs> just as the title might suggest <laughs> so you didn't have an entirely amazing time in Japan you know, when the novelty did wear off, what kind of things did you start to notice about Japan that you hadn't really noticed before? Um, I guess just cultural differences, like, um, like, cause, I mean, it's a pro anacon. Like, they're so polite um, and deferential, um, which is great. But then, at the same time, it, it creates awkward situations when, I don't know, for example, there's like a loud Western guy dominating. A group conversation and being very obnoxious and I know he's being obnoxious because I can I understand what he's saying mm-hmm. but um yeah the sort of the Japanese people in the group wouldn't say anything like they would just sort of nod along and smile because it's polite to show that you're listening and enjoying the trash that he's <laughs> spewing forth <laughs> so um, what kind of stuff might he be saying I mean you're probably thinking of an actual an actual example of this um it's just maybe like sexual conquests or wow. um or just like uh how can, how do I describe it like the rude or dirty kind of just yeah I'm going to get drunk and then I'm going to f someone later on and and you're just sitting there like yeah but the japanese people aren't enjoying this and you can see it but they're yeah they're just they're going along with it um, which is confusing, and also other other times as well. Like when, if you're trying to organise a party or something, they will be very, um, they will uh, defer to you first because you're the Westerner and you're the the guest. So it'll be like, oh, what you know, what do you want to do this evening? So like, oh no, I'm happy doing whatever you want to do. It's like, well, okay, do you have a favourite restaurant? No, I'm happy to go to the one you want to go to. So like, oh, getting a forthright opinion is sometimes. Um, frustration but again like i said it's a pro anacon that's off it, they're off it's often extremely delightful yeah lovely it's, it's a good a good bad yeah it's so a good bad not all bad yeah but um what about their tv i mean it's, it's awful. chaotic mm. is it actually chaotic you are on japanese tv yeah i snuck on um yeah it's again it's it, it mimics the city tokyo like it's very garish lots of flashing lights very loud very superficial um yeah and i got invited on um, to talk about Japanese sex toys. Um, so there's a, I'm not, I think it's made it, I'm not sure if they made them over here, but they might have done. There's a company called Tenga, um, and they really, it's really, it's really horrible. They've released, um, you buy like a clutch of six eggs, um, and you pop the eggs open, and sort of unscrew them in, down, down the middle, and inside there's like a weird, stretchy latex sort of glove in rolled up and coiled inside and uh you sort of use that uh to you know perform some sort of onanistic act on yourself um so i was there talking about that interesting yeah. and so so were not because you... i wanted to <laughs> they said no this is what you're going to talk about like all right can i have a better topic please so it, it wasn't a comedian's show then it was a it, it kind it was of a sales show were you trying to sell sell <laughs> these too tired of people try <laughs> unborn chicken fetuses um <laughs> 
<laughs> no, what was it? It was it was actually it was presented by two comedians, but it was about getting perspectives on Japan from Westerners. Um, yeah. So and yeah, it, I was on that, and I had to whip the egg out and pop it open and talk about it and say how ridiculous it was. Um, so you were given almost a script. Yeah, we kind of talked through what I was going to say beforehand. Um, and it was really weird because my Japanese wasn't that great. It was good enough, but it wasn't that great. So there was sort of a very bizarre moment that I'll always remember where the conversation was flowing, the cameras were rolling, and s- someone in the production guys obviously thought, this is this is a perfect spot for um, Jazz to talk about the egg. And he was trying to say it to me, and but I didn't understand. So he, someone in the background held up a giant card sign like bring out the sex egg um, which was just I was like what am I doing this is just the weirdest time I'm sitting talking to Japanese people and someone's just held up a sign telling me to bring out the sex an, egg an egg you put on your penis it's very weird I just I'm trying to picture what it actually looks like but also trying not to picture yeah, what it don't. looks like yeah don't okay, we'll it's the there. stuff of nightmares in that case it's time to chuck on a track Jesus and the Mary Chain. So this track, Just Like Honey, why, why did you want to bring this on today? Um, it's kind of annoying that Sofia Coppola chose the soundtrack so well because um, <laughs> this song really nails a feeling of leaving or departure or um, nostalgia for a place. Um, and it's also got that weird electric, eerie vibe to it that really perfectly describes, sort of encapsulates Tokyo. Um, so it's the song, yeah, I played when I was on the train, the going to Tokyo airport as I was leaving Japan. Oh, 
out of the box. <laughs> out of the box. On FBI. That silly little funky track there. It's lovely, isn't it? It's adorable, and it's called Mr. Scruff. Trevor is the name of that song. Yeah. Brought on by my guest today, Jazz Twemlo. Now, why do you want to bring that song on today? Um, I think that was the song I listened to the most um, when I, uh, just before I did my first ever gig in Manchester. Um, I was at my student house in Sheffield. It was 
summer holidays um no one was in the house i was incredibly lonely um it was, it was very it was weird actually um i was looking for jobs but at the same time yeah one of my friends emailed me and said um i've, I've put you in to a, an open spot in manchester um so it wasn't even my choice really um so Didn't i just spent say. yeah so i just spent a week writing stuff and that was the track that i listened to most when i was writing because it's just kind of stimulating and get up and go awesome and mm. how the gig go yeah Wondrous. And so can I ask you about your name, Jez well. Twimlow? Is a bit of a bit of a weird one, gotta say. Yes, it's a, it it's is. an interesting name. Why Jazz and then why Twimlow? Uh, Twimlow, I had no choice over because uh, <laughs> that's that's just what I was born with. It's um, there's a, it comes there's a weird ta- there's a, it's not a weird town. I'm sure it's a lovely town. There's a town. <laughs> start again. Uh, in England, uh, called Twemlow. It's in the in Cheshire somewhere, I think, or the Midlands. Um. And it's just, it comes from low, meaning uh, like a grave where you bury someone, and uh, tway, meaning two. Um, and the village has two burial mounds where two important people were buried. So that's, uh, my, my name is essentially, yeah, jazz, um, buried dead people. <laughs> so that's good, isn't it? Great, thanks. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Um, That's depressing. Yeah, it sounds really sweet. Yeah, it sounds like very something you'd expect to find in The Hobbit or something. Twimlow. Oh, it's Mr. Twimlow and his special pipe or something <laughs> like. You know what I mean? But no, it's just it's just two people are under the ground. Yeah. <laughs> Let's hope they were really important. Yeah. Um, yeah and jazz. Uh, jazz just comes from because my real name's James, but um, in Scotland and my mother's Scottish, they have a habit of shortening things like David to Das or Daz, Barry to Baz, and James often gets. Uh, shortened to jazz j-a-s um mm. but no one in japan so i use that but no one in japan when i was living there got it and for them jazz was easier because it's just a a kind of music that they recognize so they know the word and they can't pronounce they had they had for whatever reason they had trouble with jazz um and then it just stuck and i kept it, it morphed yeah well good name now yeah yeah interesting i like it and so we've got one last track to take today and it's by motorhead Ace of Spades. Now, this you were listening to this song a lot at a time in your life where you were on the wrong meds, apparently. Yeah, oh, yeah, that was horrible. Um, what, what was happening there? Who put you on the meds and, and why? Um, it's. I think it's a problem that a lot of bipolar people encounter, which is that your first trip to the GP, where you kind of build the courage up to say, look, you know, I'm feeling really depressed all the time. Um, the problem is... If, if you go to the doctor, you're going to complain about feeling bad. You're not also going to complain, oh, and by the way, there's also these times where I feel absolutely fantastic. So there's a weird bias towards first-time um, diagnoses being just depression. And that's the problem with bipolar, is that yeah. you have these incredible lows mm. where you can barely get out of bed, but then you have these incredible highs yeah. where you're just, you know, it's manic, but you're very productive or very yeah. happy. And you wouldn't, you naturally wouldn't complain about that. Yeah. So I went to the GP... And he said, yeah, you, you know, you're, you're depressed. So he prescribed um, antidepressants. And, of course, the problem with that is it shifts all the lows up to somewhere around the middle, which is mm-hmm. nice. But then also, um, proportionally, your, your, your highs also go up as well. Um, so what did that do to you? Like, what, at this time in your life, what do you kind of... What's your life turn into when you're on these wrong meds? Um, for me, I don't know how it affects other people, but for me, I just I just became extremely um, irresponsible and reckless, and um, just yeah, a bit too too reckless, really. I would, um, you know, drink uh, several days in a row while still somehow turning up at work in the same clothes. Um, 
it's all that kind of stuff and you know it feels I didn't feel any detrimental effect like I was breezing through days without sleep and doing all sorts of um yes silly things um yeah so and but then that you know that's the trigger for going to see a specialist like look whatever these pills are <laughs> it's I don't think they're quite working because I've turned into a, I'm I'm a very responsible guy so all this stuff I'm doing just doesn't feel like me um, and he said, yeah, well, then that, that in itself is almost a, a diagnosis. You know, if, if you take antidepressants and that happens to you, it's probably more because you're bipolar and not just depressed. It's really interesting. And like, mm. as a comedian and you know, just as a person, you're a very logical guy. Does that make having bipolar easier, being logical, or does it make it harder? Well, I think it was, yeah, it, the causative relationship was the other way around. So... Once I was diagnosed with bipolar, there, there, there suddenly becomes a distrust of your feelings. Like I need, you always need to check somehow whether you think your feelings, your emotions are the, the ones you should be having at that time. So you start heavily vetting your thoughts and putting through through a lot of um, mental checks. And out of that comes, yeah, trying to be incredibly logical and, and not giving way to emotion because you can't uh, trust them sometimes, unfortunately, when you're in that um, state. It's really interesting. Mm. So does that does that mean that as you know having bipolar does that make it kind of you know when you have those highs when you have those more productive periods does it make it better to be a comedian? Is, um, it, is that part of the blessing of the curse? I guess. Yeah, I I imagine a lot of comedians who are bipolar would probably say the same that yeah they get some of their best stuff written. Um, I saw a fascinating documentary years ago and I think Richard it was Richard Dreyfus the actor um, he said he wouldn't um, swap it for not having it because he gets so much done um yeah so it's it's yeah unfortunately um has some benefits and but um and some serious uh negatives as well all right well you're listening to fbi 94.5 it's time for beth to come in for lunch but right now we've got a track from motorhead ace of spades yes now this one why do you want to bring this one on? Because um, while I was... Well, firstly, Motorhead's my favourite band. Um, secondly, um, while I was in that crazy phase of four months of, of being on the wrong stuff, um, I got a, a rather sizable Motorhead tattoo on my back. Um, oh. <laughs> which I don't... It's not one of those, and I regret it, stories. I'm, I'm happy I, that guy got it, because I would never have got that. Mm. But I'm happy that... The, the jazz then um, he got it for you he got it for me it was a that's present a lovely from manic you to, to yeah. normal you so usually yeah all he got me was hangovers and um, <laughs> substance uh, problems but um, yeah that, and, the yeah. tattoo is a gift I'm very say, happy you got it I should say if you're listening and you're struggling with any of the like you can get in touch with Lifeline on is it 13 11 14 Got it on my head by now, yeah, that's good. <laughs> All right, it's been fantastic talking to you, Jazz. Yeah, and you now, too. Thank now you very much. A track from Motorhead. Got a Motorhead tattoo? Yep. Kind of didn't, kind of did. Yeah, it wasn't <laughs> right. me. On FBI 94.5. <laughs> Thank you. 
the box. Meet people through their music. With Ash Bertabez on FBI.